0: CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.
1: Hi, it's Fraser from Spiked here. If you haven't heard already, Spiked's internship scheme is back. So if you're an aspiring journalist, podcaster, or video maker, and you're passionate about Spikes politics, then this is the opportunity for you. We're offering paid six-month placements right here in our London offices, where you'll be helping us to produce our cutting-edge journalism. Plus, there could be the opportunity for some paid work at the end of it. To find out more and to apply, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash interns, And be quick because the deadline is next week on Friday, the 16th of June. That's spiked-online.com forward slash interns. Best of luck. Hello, and welcome back to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers. And with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And delighted to have have back on again, Candice Holdsworth, writer and commentator. Hello. Coming up on today's show, Prince Harry in the Dock the crackdown on COVID disinformation, and Oxfam's war with J.K. Rowling. To keep up with all of Spike's podcasts and videos, make sure you subscribe to this channel and click the bell so you never miss an episode. So Prince Harry was in court this week, the first royal in over 130 years, or the first senior royal in over 130 years, to appear in the witness stand. Tom, he's suing the Mirror Group newspapers. He alleges that they've hacked his phone. He doesn't seem to have provided all that much evidence for
0: this. I mean, what did you make of um, his few days in court? I think it was, a, it was quite a striking spectacle insofar as, as you say, he's suing Mirror Group. He's accusing the Daily Mirror, the Sunday Mirror and the people of systemic phone hacking and other illegal activities. Um, he's got more than 140 different stories, focusing on about three dozen of them that he's convinced... Uh, were got by illegal means. And yet time and time again, he was incapable of providing any evidence Mm. under cross-examination. He would say things like, you'd have to ask the journalist how they got this particular information. It got quite embarrassing at certain points because the KC paid to represent the Mirror Group was pointing out things like, this story had previously appeared in other newspapers. (laughs) (laughs) Or there's a source quoted in here. Do you not think maybe they (laughs) were the Mm. source of this particular story? And yet on and on and on and went. And I think it was useful insofar as it demonstrated that um, this was never really about particular instances in which the press may or may not have done something that they shouldn't have done. This is a broader crusade against the media. He's got it into his head that um, it's a malevolent force. I mean, his 55-page witness statement, which came out the same day that he took the stand, makes that all a bit explicit. He says the media have blood on their hands, yeah. they whip up trolls, force people to commit suicide. All He blames them for essentially everything that's wrong that's happened in his life, more or less since school. And I think in his inability to kind of, you know, bring the goods insofar as backing up his specific criminal claims has just underlined the fact that whilst over the years there may have been instances of actual wrongdoing, the the Mirror Group have admitted to at least one in his particular case, which they did from the outset. That's not what really this is about. And that's the story that we always see where the press is concerned, is that the kind of the thin pretense of this is just about criminal wrongdoing is usually just a cover yeah, the fact that this is mainly about bringing the press to heel. And there's been a good example of that in the High Court, I think, this week.
1: And and Candice, I mean, lots of people, uh, lots of members of the public think Harry's a bit of an idiot. Is that the media's fault? Is it because of the way that they've portrayed him?
2: I think everything that he's tried to do to, do to sort of shape his own image has massively backfired. Mm. I think people have maybe seen what he's really like. This is <laughs> who he is. He's a very... Entitled, angry, bitter man. Mm. I can have some sympathy with a child being exposed to the media when they have no choice over it, but he has, as an adult, Mm. has exposed himself. I mean, some of the most private moments in his life for his Netflix Netflix documentary, his book, and he can't reconcile that conflict. How can you not like press intrusion? Yet you yourself put yourself out there, and it's because I think we all know. He wants to control the narrative and he can't handle any criticism. I mean, he is completely 100% temperamentally unsuited to be a public figure because he can't take the rough with the smooth. And he's he's just he believes that he is the person who's on a one man crusade to right the wrongs of the media. And it's not working. And he's got no credibility in that regard.
1: And Tom, you know, you, you suggested Harry was saying the press has blood on their hands. I mean, there was worse stuff than that that came out.
0: I mean, it was the spectrum of what he's accusing the press of is stunning. Mm. I mean, because it goes from basically his school years up until, you know, his adult life. And he essentially blames the media for everything. So there's the slightly more silly end. He talks about the Mirror or one of the newspapers reporting on the fact that he got a polo injury and as a consequence of this quote, he was called a pussy at school. Yeah. So this, so he was blaming the media for being bullied at school, which is one particular thing. Um, he blames it for his relationships breaking down, for so on and so forth. I mean, moving forward into his adult life there was this case where there was a headline that said hooray harry's dumped which was in relation to his uh, relationship with chelsea davey he said it was dreadful because they were celebrating this relationship breakdown to be pointed out to him that hooray harry was um you know like hooray henry which yeah. was supposed to be a bit of a play on words another thing that was lost on him um there's one very fascinating bit he talks explicitly about being called a thicko and an idiot by the media an outrageous slur uh, i don't know where they possibly got it from And there's this passage in his witness statement, bearing in mind this is from him but it's also gone through his lawyers, I've written it down just because it has to be seen to be believed, Where he suggests that all of these news stories calling him a bit dim could have easily put him at risk. And he says anyone of the thousands of people I met or was introduced to on any given day could easily have gone, you, you're that idiot, I've read all the stories about you and now I'm going to stab you. (laughs) <laughs> this is not a well balanced individual that we're talking about here. And I think um I think Candace is completely right insofar as there's again there's this tension. He claims he wants to stand up for his privacy of that mm. of him and his family, and yet he's been invading his own privacy for so long. And I know far too much about this man, his anatomy, his life story, and so on at this point. Uh but then there's also that question about a public figure. He claims that he just wants to live his life, and yet he's now this kind of self chosen crusader. Yeah against the press. He's been embraced as such by the kind of hacked off anti-press freedom lobby. Um, but at the same time, he's just not very good at it because he is ultimately a slightly risible figure. And whilst he's used to quite soft-soap interviews and mm. discussions about his life from Oprah or Ellen, whoever, you put him in a courtroom and he comes apart quite quickly. I think that's what we've seen this week.
1: And it was interesting, you know, he wasn't just uh, rallying against the press. He was even, you know, having, giving some advice on democracy as well at one point you know he talked about our government being at rock bottom and democracy failing us when the press fails us I mean you know no one was going to go to him for advice on democracy he's
2: got no self-awareness whatsoever I don't think he even understands that as a member of the royal family that is the only way we have to hold them to account through press scrutiny and for instance when he dressed up in the Nazi uniform I mean he hated all the negative attention he got for that but actually I mean that's something worthy of discussion a member Mm. of the royal family doing that Sure, he was a teenager at the time and people can be like, okay, he was being a bit stupid.
1: But He was third in line to the throne yes, back then.
2: Yes. And I mean, for members of the Jewish community, that was actually quite alarming that he took that so...
1: so uh... And a P-word I mean, scandal as well. Yeah, yeah. As well. people forget about that. Yeah, yes,
2: yes. Yeah. He's
1: made, he made himself as an anti-racist, so... <laughs> wow,
2: well, the sudden transformation, Yeah, you know. But it's, he has become, like you say, ris- risible, pitiable. None of the, what he's doing is working for him in any way and he, he just... Because I think he's so removed from everything, he's unable to see it. He's unable to have that insight.
1: And there's this broader, you know, we've been talking about this sort of war on the press. And mm. one thing, he, he seemed to really ape the kind of hacked off line at one point. He, he talked about, he made this distinction between public interest journalism and journalism that is interesting to the public. The classic kind of anti-press mm-hmm. trope where, you know, stories about Harry um, or any royal or whatever or any celebrity, should be ignored because it's not high-minded enough, it's not in the public interest. Mm. I mean, what did you make of that kind
0: of... I mean, that could have been written by Hacked Off, that particular yeah. line. It may well have been. There's a lot of people like that kind of sniffing around him these days. And Mick, Hume made the point on despite this week, in his article about um, Prince Harry and the assault on the press, is that that was always one of the things that they tried to push home. They were like essentially saying, we should define mm. what the public interest is. It's got nothing to do with what the public are interested in, um, which often if you're a young royal cavorting around could actually be your private life unfortunately that's up to editors to make those particular decisions but he has very explicitly become essentially the most prominent campaigner in the UK for regulation of the press which is outrageous enough in and of itself Um, you see him not only making explicit political statements over the course of this week saying that the press and the government were rock bottom that did the rounds one that didn't get quite caught as much is that he explicitly said we need proper press regulation now, coming from a member of the royal family, this should be particularly shocking to us because, you know, it's like he's nostalgic for the days of 300 years ago. When we had crown licensing of the press. Yeah, Press freedom in this country is built on people who were willing to take the piss out of royals. That's essentially where it comes from, where the original fight for it comes from. So for him to not only take this position, to, but to be lauded for taking this position, I think is really quite striking. And it does feel like, particularly with a... Labour government potentially coming back in, who are going to be much more sympathetic yeah. to reopening the whole Leveson question. Um, we need to be much more on our guard because so many, it feels like all of these arguments are, are coming back. But one thing that's worth stressing, and Mick makes his point in this piece, is that so much of the arguments for, in the same way that Harry can back up his allegations, that's always been the case with the press. You had a few kind of instances of wrongdoing which no one wanted to defend. Then you had a whole bunch of essentially misinformation, you know, claims about the news of the world, hacking Millie Dowler's phone and deleting messages which never took place. Charlotte Church claiming that The Sun did a countdown towards her, you know, getting to 16. 16. Never happened. It was a prankster who did that and made yeah. it mocked up to look like The Sun. So you have this these kind of stories doing the rounds. It's always been built upon, effectively, public figures who are upset with having a bit of a rough time in the press and use that as the pretext, often using um, individuals and victims as kind of human shields to push for a much more broader agenda of trying to bring the press to heel. So I think in him aping those arguments for the hacked-off lobby, in him becoming that kind of royal poster boy for him, you really see that, that all of those arguments are back. Yeah. Um, and particularly with the way that the electoral politics is moving at this point, I think anyone who does not want to see that return to kind <laughs> of, you know, the state shackling of the press needs to be much more on their guard than they might have been previously.
1: Definitely. And and Candice, whenever Prince Harry and uh, Meghan Markle are in the news, you know, the question of truth. Always emerges. Um, did we get a version of Harry's truth? Do you think, or the truth? That because often those things are, are not quite aligned.
2: Always. I mean, he's. I've said it before. He's very led by emotion and what he thinks about things. And you know, sometimes when he's talking about the media, he mixes lots of things up. So he'll talk about comment threads, for instance, yeah, things he's yeah. read on there, and it's got nothing to do with what people are printing in the media. You know, what other journalists have said. He sometimes him him and Meghan. Imagine what goes on in newsrooms when journalists are planning stories and they think that they know, but they obviously have no idea whatsoever. I mean, it's just their very distorted perception of things. So, no, we absolutely don't get get the truth.
1: Because I think he had to admit that something in spare contradicted Mm. either his evidence or vice versa.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. It's actually quite narcissistic, actually, in many ways. You know, he thinks that he is the one. Who has the truth, and, and no one else knows what's going on, and, and no humility in that regard either.
0: Not without wanting to get too philosophical about it, you do wonder how much he actually buys his own bullshit on this mm. front. Um, <laughs> that kind of slightly postmodern "my truth" stuff. I mean, there is that amazing quote in Spare, which I can't remember for the life of me, but where essentially says, my, "You know, my own recollections are." as much the truth as so-called objective fact. It's something yeah. along those lines. And, and he does say, like, yeah,
1: so-called objective facts, like dismisses that and as a concept.
0: Very strange sort of, you know, post mod sort of statement. So you do wonder how much of the, they actually buy that they can almost like create their own <laughs> reality, but the rest of us shouldn't have to live in it.
2: It's <laughs> so, so always feelings over reason, though. I feel yeah. like that's just what's elevated now. It's like, if I, if something makes me feel this way, then it must be true. Yeah rather than actually objectively what is happening. And I feel that that's the moment we're in now and Megan and Harry are just so <laughs> emblematic of it.
1: <laughs> well, sticking with um, the question of defining the truth, let's talk a bit about COVID disinformation. Um, it was emerged, it emerged at the weekend thanks to a Telegraph investigation um, along with Big Brother Watch, the Civil Liberties campaign group. Um, th- the authorities were monitoring lockdown sceptics to an even greater extent than we had already known and passing their information on to social media and having some of their posts downgraded or or, or deleted. Um, Tom, I mean, what have you made of these kind of latest revelations?
0: Well, it's building on some work that Big Brother Watch have been doing for some time now, um, and essentially particularly going to kind of public figures, prominent critics of lockdown, and asking them to do uh, essentially various different kind of forms of access requests it, in terms of the information that the government had stored on them. And mm. um, there was a report that they brought out a few months back on this whole kind of broader Ministry of Truth, these various different disinformation units within government, even within the British Army, um, which were collecting reports, lists, um, posts um, from prominent lockdown sceptics, and this is the sort of latest front in that. I think what the latest revelations, which relates to a bunch of individuals, but um, ones that will be known to spike readers and listeners, of course, Carl Hennigan from Oxford University, Centre for Evidence-based, medicine and molly kingsley from us for them which was the campaign group which were against school closures Mm. very effective during the pandemic um and the examples that they found that were collected by these disinformation units which were in the cabinet office as well as the culture department uh were things so in molly's case it was a tweet which said that closing schools was unforgivable Mm. By any reasonable definition, how is that disinformation, willfully spreading false information, which is what it's supposed to mean. In the case of Carl Hennigan, remembering that he's a professor of evidence-based medicine, he had questioned the evidence behind the Rule of Six, which was one of those kind of nonsensical back-of-a-fag-packet COVID rules that we've tried to forget at this point, and the second lockdown, Mm. very much within his wheelhouse, you might think. Um, He's not a malign (laughs) actor. He's not a bad actor in any stretch of the imagination. Um, and yet this is, was compiled as part of these reports. So I think it just adds a bit more detail and a bit more colour to what's been exposed and coming up for some time, which is that during the pandemic, you had that kind of pre-existing sort of post-2016 panic about disinformation just be put on steroids. And also it starts to have real consequences in terms of how government was turning work and tools that were often only previously used in relation to kind of hostile foreign actors and things yeah. like that on their own domestic populations. Um, the big question, which is um, hovering over all of this, is how much did this actually lead to social media censorship? Um, so obviously people like Carl Hennigan and Molly Kingsley both had their brushes with big tech censorship. Um, the government has refused, um, has rejected the idea that they had anything to do with that censorship in those two cases, but they have, the Telegraph and Big Brother Watch, have found of information requests from one of these units, the now defunct rapid response unit, saying that it had ask for posts to be taken down the culture department has what they call trusted flagger status so they can request um of the social media firms yeah that certain posts be taken down and those will be fast-tracked so th- at the moment again not it, it, there's a lot of kind of circumstantial evidence as well as some much more damning evidence but even so whilst we wait for more to come out that general dynamic between government leaning on the social media firms We've seen it time and time again, and I think you'd have to be incredibly naive to think that that wasn't a relationship that they used to the fullest during the lockdown. Given all the things that we're starting to know now,
1: yeah. And and Candice, I mean, doesn't this go on to show that the word disinformation has has nothing really to do with lies and truth? But are you on the correct side of the argument as far as the state sees it?
2: Yeah, it's lost all meaning now. I mean, anything—it's just it. Its dissent is now framed as disinformation. I mean, this is what. Everyone was saying when the Big Brother Watch re- report first came out, just people questioning lockdown were now being flagged under disinformation, misinformation. And I think we know that now. It's almost like um there's th- the understanding of people being good people but just disagreeing about something is lost. it's it's for or against it's black and white. And it amazes me that, you know, people in these very powerful positions like Oliver Dowden, we're involved in this. You know, I mean, these are, these are leaders in democratic countries doing incredibly undemocratic things with seemingly no understanding of it.
1: And it's interesting that, you know, scepticism of lockdown is considered disinformation, especially, you know, if you look at some of the evidence that's been emerging later on in the pandemic. You know, now that we've had a chance to look back, um, particularly looking at excess deaths, it's interesting because that doesn't, you know, that if you look at that kind of figure, it, ignores the problems with counting COVID deaths. Some governments overcounted, some governments undercounted, things like that. And it seems pretty clear from 2022 onwards around 2023 looking back that there's just no correlation between the stringency of lockdown and the number of excess deaths from the panic, from the pandemic. And, you know, what's extraordinary is that in every measure Sweden, which famously didn't have a lockdown, comes out really, really well. So, you know, who is spreading disinformation? Is it is it the people arguing that lockdown is this brilliant, you know, tool um, and should be exercised at every opportunity.
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, that could just be reversed so easily. And I remember the way Sweden was absolutely monstered Hmm. for taking that position. I mean, people were making out like they were almost trying to kill their population. I mean, there was no sort of um, appreciation of, okay, they're trying something different. I mean, there was just this horrible atmosphere of conformism that took over. And because we were all in our homes and we were relying on social media, that was the only means we had of communication. It made it doubly sinister that Mm. we could even all be surveilled in that instance, in our disagreements. And people could be censored like that. I mean, it was really frightening, actually. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, maybe that's just because, you know, obviously we talk about free speech so much is why I am so alarmed by it. But it's always amazing to me the way people go, oh, well, it's just not a big deal you know, whatever, you know, they were just protecting us at the time. (laughs) Well, again, it shows
1: the dangers of assuming you know the truth, the dangers of censorship, assuming that an authority has this higher, you know, insight into what is true and what is false. Mm.
0: No, completely. And, you know, allowing the government or a corporation or whoever to be the Ministry of Truth is obviously a dreadful idea, not least because they're really bad at it. They're even worse than anyone. You know, you could pick five people off the street and they'd be better at guessing where the evidence might be leading than a lot of these chumps at this point. But what I think was interesting about these particular cases as well, and and you've mentioned this, Candice, is that a lot of the time we are just talking about dissent here. So a lot of the people who had information collected on them, Molly Kingsley or David Davis is another one, he was very careful about not really making, not engaging in any kind of um, armchair epidemiology. So he opposed vaccine passports on broadly kind of civil libertarian moral grounds, if Mm. you see what I mean. Um, Many other people have made similar points and yet they still find themselves being logged you know there is nothing again trying to you know they're not even trying to engage in the information the data such as it is they're trying to make moral political points and still they were put into this bucket so i think it does demonstrate as you were saying Candice, that the war on disinformation is by this point if it wasn't already quite obviously just a war on dissent and so we just need to if not retire that term at least remember what it actually means and recognize what people are doing when they try to deploy it in all these ridiculous circumstances
2: I don't know if you guys were familiar with the oncologist Vinay Prasad. He was very much an opponent of lockdowns in America. And he was saying as well, you know, lots of these people doing the censoring on social media, you know, what exactly are their biases and prejudices? We need to understand that. Mm. And he actually looked into someone who was involved with that um, in on Facebook. And he found that this person had very strong beliefs a certain way. And they were censoring people who had the opposite beliefs. I mean, they weren't even pretending to be objective at all. There was ab- That's the problem. You know, there's all these, these scrutiny of the so-called lockdown mm. critics. And I know this is <laughs> it's quite a juvenile point, but who is watching the Watchmen? Yeah. Who are these people in, at Facebook and Twitter who are deciding what we can and cannot see?
1: I think there was a discussion that came out in the Twitter files as to whether they should censor Donald Trump for saying we shouldn't be afraid. I mean, again, you know, that's an opinion. Yeah. it's not it's not a it's not a statement of um falsehood. Yeah. it's it's a view, but it's a view that you're not allowed to hold,
2: yes, yes. And there's so little recognition of that now, And that's something that we need to recapture, that, you know, th- this ability for people to just have opinions and disagree strongly but appreciate the difference.
1: the charity Oxfam has apologized for putting out an animated video that appeared to show a caricature of j k. Rowling. So if you see the the clip, it shows um, essentially a kind of modern-day witch with red eyes. She's got a turf badge. She's got a snarling face. She's pointing at um, LGBT people uh, looking menacing. Um, Candice, why, why is this a charity, an international development charity, going after the author of Harry Potter? I mean,
2: this is what everyone's saying. But weirdly to me, I was not surprised because I just feel like... If they're Oxfam, and this is, this is what I guess we're talking about, there's no real political idiosyncrasy anymore. So I absolutely 100% perspe- expect for Oxfam to have a certain perspective on us. So I mean, I was very surprised by just how cartoonish and basic it was. But I would be so surprised if I heard that they were in support of J.K. Rowling. And, and I think it's to do with with everything we've been talking about. But I mean, they really did make themselves look very, very, very stupid because so many people questioned what they were doing. I think more people on the left Mm. who have sort of, I think, have been quite surprised at the opposition they've received for their support for J.K. Rowling. And I think it showed just how silly some of the opposition to J.K. Rowling is, how they see her. They see her as some kind of ogre, some kind of monster. (laughs) And I think it reveals more about them than it actually reveals about her, that suddenly overnight she became this beloved children's author and then suddenly she was just this witch who wants to persecute trans people
0: yeah the the demonization of her is one of the strangest phenomena of our times isn't it no completely and also you think this was brought out presumably to mark pride month yeah um you think about all the things that are going on in the world right now in relation to gay rights think about new law in uganda you think Mm -hmm. about all the various countries around the world in which if not illegal it's certainly a risky business to be a member of the lgbt community and they seem to have decided that jk rowling thinking that male rapists shouldn't be allowed in women's prisons is the is the issue that you need to talk about in one way shape or form it's ridiculous i mean it would be ridiculous even if she was a less reasonable critic than she actually is but yeah. that just shows you how central jk rowling has become as a witch as a folk devil um and the thing about panics like this where someone just becomes a sort of target for mad demonization, is it often takes light of the facts i mean you can find yourself in so many arguments online or off where well, you ask people to present any evidence of this alleged transphobia yeah. on J.K. Rowling's part, they're incapable of actually doing so because they don't actually know. She just serves a kind of purpose, which is to try and essentially draw a line under this argument at all, to say don't go near it, um, to say this is what will happen to you <laughs> if um, you dare try to raise even more eminently reasonable concerns about the extremities of of gender ideology. So it's um, it's not surprising at this point, but it is so odd and if you think this this witch hunt has really got really out of control if we're getting to the point where she has kind of even as you say oxfam seems yeah. to feel sure the need to get involved even if, whilst prompting a fair bit of backlash in doing so
1: i mean she's literally become voldemort hasn't she she's she who cannot be named and you know even if you look at the way that posters have been put up saying i heart jk rowling those had to be taken down mm. or Gillian phillip the children's author, says, um, you know, expressed her solidarity with JK Rowling and was immediately sacked and now works as a lorry driver, been hounded out of children's literature. Even just the mention of her name, the mention of that you vaguely support her Mm -hmm. gender critical views is enough to, you know, set people's hairs on edge.
2: It does worry me. And I do wonder how much social media plays in this, these sort of social media outrages that stifle any sort of debate and and kind of enforce, even if it's not on purpose, but it's everyone piling on someone at once, this sort of political conformism. Mm -hmm. And I mean, J.K. Rowling's been incredible. I mean, in the, the witch trials of J.K. Rowling, the podcast she did with Megan Phelps Roper, she said, I was happy to come off my pedestal which I think is an incredible attitude. I mean, most people could not withstand that type of heat, mm. but she is able to. I mean, people say that she has the material wealth to do so, but I think emotionally it would be hard for a lot of people to become such a figure of hate. But then what she's done is absolutely incredible. And that's that's my big worry about the era that we live in now. People aren't really able to develop a strong sense of self and to say, you know, this is what I truly believe and this is what I think. Because if they do divert in any way from a certain set of political beliefs, they'll be piled on like yeah. J.K. Rowling is. Yeah.
0: And there's another case of that this week, um, which has made the news. Because uh, you know, as we've been talking about, J.K. Rowling's often used as a kind of foil in the cancel culture argument. They say cancel culture isn't real because you always cite J.K. Rowling as a victim of it. She's the you know the most the wealthiest author in the world. How has she been cancelled and so on? The point is, you can't cancel J.K. Rowling, but the demonisation of us sends a message to mm. get people further down the pecking order to keep their mouth shut or else. We saw that with Gillian Phillip. The other case this week is this um, woman who's known as Maria. She's not given her real name. She's done an interview with Judy Bindle where she was working at Oxfam. So there's another Oxfam <laughs> example, which is incredible, where um, she's working, I think, in the sort of women's rights part of the charity. And someone had suggested on an internal message board that they remove all the Harry Potter books from the Oxfam bookshops because she's obviously such a monster. She took issue with this, and that set in train a series of allegations, complaints, and so on, which ended up with her losing her job. This was a couple of years ago, in 2020. So the dynamic here is absolutely clear. Like, cancel culture is not a threat to J.K. Rowling. How could it be? She is the CEO of J.K. Rowling, Inc. They can't take Harry Potter away from her as much as they might like (laughs) to, including the actors from those films. Um, But at the same time, you know, even people, um, quite successful people in their own respects, can easily be bitten by this. So uh, it's, it's just such a striking example of a thing. And also, we should say of Oxfam, I mean, get your own house. I mean, it was five years ago they were very credibly accused of covering up sexual exploitation amongst aid workers of um, victims of the Haiti earthquake Yeah, and so on. They've had a string of scandals. They had the Charity Commission, I think, suspended them for a period um, or put them under kind of special measures on safeguarding grounds. And they think they've got the moral authority to have a pop, a woman who's great heresy is to say that maybe you shouldn't allow a person with a penis into a women's changing room. It's ridiculous, (laughs) but there we go.
1: Well, yeah, that is, I mean, it is the great heresy of our time.
2: It is, it is. But what was incredible is the way that they backed off so quickly when they faced just a little bit of scrutiny, which tells me I wonder how confident they actually were in their own beliefs, Mm. that they were just like piling on because it's easy to do it and there's not really much risk for them. But now, actually, maybe there is a bit Mm. because there's actually a real opposition now.
1: Yeah. And and, and the other thing, I suppose, is that, you know, Tommy, you're saying they've not been able to, they've not succeeded in cancelling JK Rowling, but they want to. Mm. They really, really want to. So it's very disingenuous to claim that you know, as not an example of cancel culture.
2: Yes, yes. I I think she's absolutely incredible. I would encourage anyone to listen to the podcast that she's done so that you can really listen to the reasoning behind her beliefs and why she thinks what she thinks. And I think that people will understand that this is an incredible, thoughtful woman. She's the same thoughtful woman that she's always been. She hasn't changed. You know, this is not some Disney cartoon. She's not suddenly turned into a witch. Actually, what she's doing, I think, is really socially valuable.
1: Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.